And uh, please stand with me as we read um, the scripture this morning that Pastor Wayne will be preaching from. This is John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as in the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are so grateful for this, this truth, Lord, for this text that uh, um, as we uh, anticipate uh, celebrating Resurrection Sunday next week, Lord, where uh, this miracle was completed, Lord, where we um, are made whole uh, through, uh, through the death of Christ and through his resurrection, Lord. We pray you would uh, speak through Pastor Wayne this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, that you would continue to soften our hearts, that we may grow in faith and greater understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many consider today to be Palm Sunday. It's uh, named for the day that Christ returns to Jerusalem, knowing those he's exposed as hypocrites have been plotting his death since John 5. Having completed his ministry on earth, having completed his preparation of his disciples to initiate the church once he ascends to heaven, in John 11, he comes to Bethany. Bethany's just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And there he raises his good friend Lazarus from the dead. Well, that creates lots of chatter among the two and a half million Jews entering Jerusalem for Passover. But as he comes up over that Mount of Olives on a colt, thousands line the street, placing their cloaks and palm branches on the road before him. Thus, this Sunday is labeled Palm Sunday for the palm branches that were placed before him. And he enters to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which, by the way, that fulfills what the Lord said through the prophet Zechariah 500 years earlier. But this really irritates the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has been so fixed on, on killing Christ that this just pours salt in the wound. It's fuel on the fire. Man, are they angry. And so in this week that leads up to Christ being crucified, he goes to the temple. And once again, he's done it once before. He does it again. He cleanses the area. Gets rid of all of the money changers that are working for Annas. Annas is the former high priest who is corrupt as, as he can be. And he's kind of serving as the godfather of Israel now. But Christ goes in and just runs off these thieves and, and those who are trying to take advantage of all these Galilean Jews that are coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And he goes back to the temple area every day, confronting the chief priest and the scribes, explaining the gospel through parables, 
answering questions that are, are meant to trick him. I mean, this is the time period in which they ask him, you know, should we render tax to Caesar? I mean, they're trying to, to, they're trying to trap him. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And then, of course, there were Sadducees there who did not believe in the afterlife. So they tried to come up with their trick question and said, what if a lady were to marry a man and he dies and she marries his brother and he dies, marries another brother and he dies, you know, marries seven brothers. Who will she be married to in heaven? We got you now. If there's an afterlife like you say, boy, if we got you on the horns of a dilemma. And Christ says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't know the scripture you claim to believe and you don't understand the power of God. That's why you don't have a clear understanding of life or death or life after death. You have rejected the scripture rather than studying it. So he says to them, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Man, do you pay attention to these little legalistic details like your tithe of mint and cumin. But then you neglect the weightier matters of justice. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but man, are you dead on the inside. Your hypocrisy and your lawlessness lead you into all kinds of wickedness. And so each day, as he's confronting these hypocrites in the temple... He's also instructing his disciples on the mount in what's called the Olivet Discourse. You can go and read that this afternoon for yourself. But basically what he's saying is, I don't want you caught off guard by events that are going to unfold fulfilling scripture. And so this last week on earth is filled with confrontation and instruction. Before he, he goes to an upper room where he demonstrates the essential characteristic of humility. If you're going to serve the Lord, you cannot do it in arrogance. You can't be puffed up like the Pharisees. You're going to have to humble yourself. Humble yourself. And so he demonstrates it for them. This is when he gets down. The one who created them. Created them is the one who now gets on his knees before them and washes the filth from their feet. And then he predicts Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal before he uses the Passover meal as a means for instituting the Lord's Supper. And he promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that will lead them into all truth. Why? To keep them connected to him as the vine because they're going to be his branches that will bear much fruit. And then he prays for them on their, on their walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will voluntarily give himself up to those who are ignoring the laws of the Lord meant to ensure justice in order to fulfill their demand of Pilate, who is the, the Roman governor with the power to crucify, in order to get him to lift Christ up on a crossbar. And even that is in fulfillment of one of the most visible typologies in all of Scripture. He said this would happen back in John 3. I will be lifted up just as Moses lifted up that Nehushtan, that crossbar in the wilderness. And after being found innocent, multiple times Pilate beats him I mean literally beats him beyond recognition 
And then tries to release him instead of Barabbas. But those who love their religion, love their religion, will cry, crucify him, crucify him. Judas goes out and hangs himself with regret. Peter goes out and weeps over his disappointment in himself. Pilate goes out and ceremonially washes his hands in an attempt to avoid personal responsibility for doing what he clearly knows is the wrong thing to do. He knows it's wrong, but I mean, you got to do what you got to do when your back is against the wall, right? As Christ is being mocked by Roman soldiers, as they are nailing him to a cross and lifting him up, He will suffer for three hours. Three hours at the hands of the sinners for whom he dies to make atonement. They will spit on him. They will curse him. They will ridicule him. He is being crucified in the most populous area for entering Jerusalem. Thousands are going by seeing this. And at noon, at high day, the sun goes dark. Whole land, pitch black. Because for the next three hours, a total of six, but for the second three hours, Christ endures the wrath a holy God's character absolutely demands be satisfied before his grace can be judicially experienced. Once man's atonement is complete, Christ will declare with a loud voice to tell us, die, it is finished. He will say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. An amazing thing is, is at the very moment that he says that, Once atonement has been made, the the just wrath of a holy God has been satisfied. Propitiation has been made. You know what happens? Those working over in the temple experience an amazing sight. That 60 foot high curtain, more than double the height of the peak of this ceiling. It's 9 to 10 inches thick, the curtain is team of horses could not rip it. And yet this curtain rips by the Lord from the top all the way to the bottom. There's no longer a need for a separation between sinners and a holy God for Christ has made atonement for them. That 60 foot high, 9 to 10 inch thick veil is ripped. And a centurion standing nearby says, truly, this man is the Son of God. And being the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, Jews, of course, have requested that the legs of these three be broken. Talking about Christ and the two thieves, one on each side, because the Bible had said in the Old Testament, he will be numbered with criminals, and and he was. Why break their legs? Well, they've been been using them to, to push up on the cross in order to be able to breathe, to get air into the diaphragm. If you break their legs, they go down, it cuts off their ability to breathe, and they now die of asphyxiation. They get to Christ after breaking the legs of the thieves and see no need to break those legs because, well, he's not pushing his body up with them. 
does no good to break his legs. Again, fulfilling scripture that said none of his bones would be broken. But being professional executioners, they must ensure that he is dead. So they, they run a spear through his side all the way to his heart. And the, and the blood that atones for sinners, that brings new life, Leviticus 17, right? By the shedding of blood, life comes. And the water that cleanses us from sin are visible symbols of what Christ accomplished at the cross as blood, or, as blood and water come forth. Of course, that also provides undeniable proof that he is physically dead. And in this just matter of hours, there are more than two dozen Old Testament prophecies regarding his death that are completely fulfilled right down to the most minute detail. But there's more. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Now, I want you to notice something kind of amazing about this. First of all, the Romans liked leaving crucified bodies on the cross, on these crosses. They'd leave them up there for days. Why? Well, they're billboards. They're billboards. For this is what happens to you when you challenge Caesar's authority. And so they like to let the bodies rot. Let the vultures come and pick them apart. And then they would take what was left down and throw them into a garbage dump called Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word that is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Gehenim. The valley of Gehenim is just south of Jerusalem. This is where back in the Old Testament the Israelites would pass their children through the fire, sacrificing them to Can the Canaanite god Molech in the days of Jeremiah when idols, idol worship had infiltrated the land. Now in Christ's day, this same area is where you burn trash and where you burn dead bodies. This is where maggots and worms crawl through the waste. The smoke is sickening. It's a place of filth and torment. Christ uses it as a symbolic depiction of hell where the fire of God's holy wrath never ceases. Read about it in Matthew 10 or in Mark 9. He uses it as a physical picture of what an eternal place of judgment is like when you're separated. See, right now you're living under the mercies of God. When you're separated from the goodness and the mercies of a loving Lord... This is what it's like to be in the presence of his wrath. This is where the Romans tossed the dead. The Jews know, though, that the Lord said in Deuteronomy 21 that even though those who commit these heinous crimes are worthy of death, they are also worthy of burial because they not because they deserve to be respected, but because the Lord deserves to be respected. They are created in his image. And that's why they don't want these bodies left on crosses overnight. It's an abomination before the Lord. And so as the sun is setting rapidly, these professional executioners have broken their legs, have hastened their death, and now you've got to get them down off the cross. 
And what is amazing is the Sanhedrin, which, as you know, is made up of, of 70 of the elites of that day, Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, you got to remember, there were 6,000 Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the minority party on the Sanhedrin, the court of the Sanhedrin. And so you had to be a really special Pharisee. To, you had to be really wealthy. You had to be very influential to even get on this court. And these are the guys who've been plotting the death of Christ since John 5. These are the guys who cry, crucify him, crucify him. And yet what's so amazing is it's two members of the Sanhedrin, a guy named Joseph and a guy named Nicodemus, who request the body of Christ. Now, people who are watching this unfold wouldn't probably think anything of it. Because, I mean, after all, the Sanhedrin is the council that had requested that he be crucified. So the fact that members of the Sanhedrin that would then come and take the bodies and dispose of them would probably not raise any questions in the eyes of the public. As a matter of fact... If these had been Galilean Jews making this request, Pilate probably would not have released them. Even if they had been ordinary Judeans, they couldn't have gotten the bodies. But the fact that these are two wealthy, influential members of the council that's been pressuring him to crucify Christ, they now come and request the body. And so he, after he knows for sure that Christ is dead, he gets, he gets confirmation from the professional executioners that are doing it. He gets confirmation. He says, okay, then you can have the bodies. Matthew tells us that Joseph is very wealthy. Luke says he's a good man. He's a just man. John says he's a disciple of Christ. But secretly for fear of the Jews. Luke tells us that, that he didn't go along with the Sanhedrin's decision to have Christ crucified. He, he didn't go along with that. Mark tells us that it took a lot of courage for Joseph to make this request. A lot of courage. And it's only after Christ has been officially and unquestionably pronounced dead, confirmed dead, Pilate grants permission. So don't listen to any of that nonsense that's out there among liberals. This is even taught in some seminaries. You know, there's this theory that, that Christ uh, went into a coma on the cross. And, and then when they took him down and put him in the cool tomb, he all of a sudden was revived. That is complete fiction. It's also totally impossible. John tells us that Joseph is from the Judean area called Arimathea. That distinguishes him from a lot of the other Josephs of that time. We're not real sure exactly where this is located. Some think it's the area where Samuel, you remember Samuel, the last judge of Israel, the first prophet? Remember when the Israelites, Moses leads them out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness for 40 years, Moses dies on Mount Nebo, and Joshua and Caleb lead the Israelites into the promised land, and the Lord leads them for 350 years by what he calls judges. These are military leaders through whom he works in order to guide his people. But after 350 years of that, the people are saying, we don't like this, we want kings like all the other nations around us. So they demand that they get a king. One that's head and shoulders above all others. One from the, from the fighting tribe, the left-handed warriors of Benjamin. 
And so Samuel is the last of the judges for that period, and he is the first prophet who now ordains and proclaims Saul king. Now he'll also do the same for David. He'll anoint David as king as well because Saul was, he didn't turn out too good. Well, that's who they're talking about here, Samuel. Some believe that Joseph is from the same area where Samuel was born 1,100 years earlier. If his request for the body would not have been a surprise to those who are watching this unfold, why would it take courage for Joseph to do this? Have you thought about that? Why would it take courage? If many of that day wouldn't think anything about it, Why would it take so much courage for him to go and request the body? For one thing, the Sanhedrin did not agree to this. The Sanhedrin didn't tell him to do this. He's doing this on his own. The Sanhedrin said, we want him crucified. We hate this guy. What are you, what are you as a part of our circle here What are you doing going over and requesting his body? Let the Romans dispose of him. Well, we're Jews. Says he ought to be buried. Yeah, but but you're showing him the kind of respect that we don't believe that he deserves. We have a lot of questions for you, Joseph. Why are you, as as one of our members, taking it upon yourself to bury his body in a new tomb in an area reserved for us elites? He's not an elite. Why are you doing this? As a secret disciple, this could force Joseph to answer some really tough questions. I mean, mean, we get it as, as Jews that we bury the dead instead of casting them into a dump. But I mean, this man... This man, we hate him. We hate him. We have called for him to be crucified. We have called for his blood to be on us and our children. What are you doing, Joseph? Burying him in a place reserved for dignified members of our society. Indeed, it did take a lot of courage. We had a young man here a few years ago getting his PhD at UK in science. And he was attending a course I was teaching during the Sunday school hour, uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, as I was uh, teaching through that, that first chapter uh, there, he came up to me after class and he said, you know what you taught this morning about creation? What you taught about creation fits all of the scientific facts that we observe in science. But if my attending professor at UK ever found out that I agreed with the scriptures instead of embracing the evolutionary standard of the science department, he would never, never approve my PhD. Never. So Bobby was a secret disciple. Not in his private life, not here in his church life. He was a secret disciple in his educational circles. 
He kept silent about his faith in Christ there. He kept silent about his convictions about the truth of God's word. He hid those from his, those in his professional circle. And evidently, Joseph did the same thing. Joseph kept quiet in his professional circle around the other members of the Sanhedrin. So coming for the body of Christ without the Sanhedrin's approval, taking Christ off of the cross, which would have made Joseph a Jew ceremonially unclean. I mean, to touch a dead body, according to Leviticus 5, and you see it again in Numbers 19, verse 11. I mean, to touch a dead body defiles you. It makes you unclean. Why? Well, because of all the diseases and discharges that come from that which is dead. And here we are right here at Passover. Passover. And you, a respected member of the council, is going to touch a dead body and put that body in your tomb? I mean, you got to remember the members of the Sanhedrin earlier, they wouldn't even go inside Pilate's headquarters because there might be leavened bread in there. You can't go into a place that's got leavened bread. That would defile us. And here it is, right at Passover. Joseph, you've got some very uncomfortable questions you need to answer. That's why John tells us he feared the Jews. As a respected member of the Sanhedrin, to be a disciple of Christ... They'll not only replace him. I mean, this could really cost him financially. It might even cost him his life. Because you have to understand, this group that he belongs to really hates Christ. And now he's showing them, he's showing the body of Christ respect. As the Lord said in his word, when, when speaking to the one who would accomplish our salvation, he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. In chapter 53, he says, he will be despised and rejected by men. He will bear our grief. He will bear our sorrows. He will be crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, like a lamb led to slaughter. And then in verse 9, chapter 53, they made his grave with the wicked. Oh, they had ever intentions of burying him alongside those thieves. Not where Joseph put him. And yet the Lord says through Isaiah, he'll be buried with the rich. Why do you think the Lord said that? Because see, if man's in control of this, he's going to be buried with the criminals. If the Lord is in charge of all of this, if he's sovereign over what is transpiring right before their very eyes, he says it's going to be an amazing thing. That man wants him buried with the criminals, but I'm telling you, he'll be married with the rich. This is unfolding just as the Lord said. And Mark says that Joseph bought fine linen in which he wrapped the body. In verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. I mean, this guy, Nicodemus, is the one who had come to Christ secretly at night in John 3. This is one of the 6,000 Pharisees throughout Israel who's a member of the ruling body that narrows it down now to the top 20 or 25. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's the one to whom Christ says, Nick, look, you got to get away from being all wrapped up in your religion. You got to be born again. 
you got to be born again. Later, we see in chapter 7, when they come to arrest Christ, they return without him. And in verse 45, they, they're asked, you know, why didn't you do what you were told? And, and, and the guards said, well, no man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees said, who cares? Have any of the authorities, any Pharisee believed in this guy? Now, if you're standing there with these, these members of the Sanhedrin, these other Pharisees, you're Joseph, you're Nicodemus, do you feel the weight of that kind of peer pressure? None of us believe in him. None of us, right? In verse 50, Nicodemus speaks up and says, does our law judge a man without giving him a hearing or learning what he does? Shouldn't we hear from him before we condemn him? You remember how they answered him? Verse 52. Their response was, Are you from Galilee too? Huh? What's wrong with you? Don't you know no prophet arises from Galilee? He's Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Of course, if you'll remember when we went through John 7, there were prophets that arose out of Galilee. The Lord rose up Jonah, Nahum, Hosea, Elijah, Elisha. So they don't know what they're talking about. Plus, they don't realize that Christ actually made his entrance into humanity in Bethlehem of Judea. So even though he's identified as Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, he entered humanity in Judea. Those who follow the father of lies never want facts to get in the way of accusations. They're trying to make a case that Christ can't be the Messiah because the Lord said that that would happen in Judea. Well, this is the same Nicodemus that we saw in John 3. Same Nicodemus we saw in John 7. And now we see them in John 19. What's he doing? He is bringing myrrh and alloys. You know what myrrh is? It's a gum-like substance. It's used to adhere strips of cloth to the body. Kind of like when you put a Band-Aid on, you know, you've got that part that sticks to you. That's kind of what the myrrh does. And then you, you soak these strips in alloys to, to offset the smell of the decay of the body. John says he brought 75 pounds. Why is that significant? Well, there's two things that I see in this. Number one, they obviously did not expect a resurrection. I mean, you don't load down somebody with 75 to 80 pounds of, of uh, myrrh and, and alloys and, and, and cloth if you expect a resurrection. That's a lot of spices. The second thing I see is that amount of spices is really reserved for the extremely rich. So this is really not a courtesy burial. They're treating the body of Christ with the highest of respect. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews. But in the place where he was crucified, there was a, a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in, in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, did you go back up there and look at that again in verse 40? Bound in linen cloths with spices. Do, do you see any significance in that? These are long bandage-like strips that are being used. 
not a shroud. It's not the shroud of Turin. The place where Joseph hewed out a tomb from solid rock was nearby. The sun is setting quickly. They take the body off the cross. They wrap it in linen cloths using myrrh to adhere these strips that have been saturated with alloy to his body. You'll remember at the incarnation, does this bring back any remembrance of the wise men who come from Persia? Remember that? They come to Bethlehem. They bring three gifts. What were they? Gold. Gold is a symbol of divinity. You see it throughout the Bible. If you look at the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, what was there? The Ark of the Covenant. The four and a half foot, by two and a half foot, two and a half foot deep chest, Ark, Covenant, uh, um, coffin, that had the Ten Commandments inside. And when the Lord looked down upon his commandments that had been broken, remember how the high priest made sacrifice there? What was the top what was the top of that coffin called? The mercy seat. What was it made of? Solid gold. Solid gold. As were the cherubim. Solid gold. Why? It's a symbol of divinity. And you remember they also brought frankincense? Why? That's a highly fragrant gum used in worship for making sacrifice before the Lord. That's why. And they brought myrrh, the spice that we're talking about here, that's used for preparing not only bodies for burial, but remember earlier, it's used to be mixed with wine to create gall for those crucified. When gall was offered to Christ, he rejects it, fulfilling what the Lord said in Psalm 69. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So those three gifts brought by those members of the, the Magi, the Persian court, very significant. Gold is symbolic of his deity because he is the king of kings. Frankincense, symbolic of his sacrifice as our high priest before the Lord. And myrrh, used in his atoning death for our sin, both at the cross and his burial in the tomb. Well, as we kind of come to the end of this, let me ask you this question. What, what do you think motivated these two guys? You know, some people think it was guilt. Some people say, well, you know, these two guys know the brutality of what Christ experienced was without question the greatest injustice in the history of human race. Everybody there knows that he broke no laws. Pilate proclaimed that repeatedly. Everybody there saw his kindness, his compassion, how he healed the sick and, the, and made the blind to see and the lame to walk and his miracles confirmed over and over and over his teaching regarding his deity. Even the way he conducted himself before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod, before the Roman soldiers. I mean, this was stuff like, like Joseph and Nicodemus had never seen anything like this before. Even the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. Yeah, and in his love for the Lord, he did display righteous indignation when he cleansed the temple of those that were taking a place of worship and prayer and making it into a den of thieves. Yeah, in his answers from Scripture, he did reveal the foolishness of their questions and the hardness of their hearts and their ignorance of God's word. 
but by the grace of our Lord. You got these two guys here, very unlikely guys, Joseph and Nicodemus. And even really one of the thieves on, on, the, on the cross next to him. They're all able to see what others absolutely refuse to admit. This man's done nothing wrong. And yet for Joseph and Nicodemus, it's their friends. It's their associates. It's the members of their own council who had cried, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. Yet they know this is not right. So is it guilt that drives them to now treat Christ with respect? And in so doing, they fulfill scripture, just as the Lord said 700 years earlier, that he will be buried with the rich? Or is it possible that they did this out of a genuine love for the Lord? Did they love Christ? But couldn't say it out of fear of what might happen to them? I mean, think about the disciples of Christ that will become the apostles during the church age, where are they at right now? They're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews also. They're afraid of what might happen to them because of their association with Christ. So is it possible, possible, that Joseph and Nicodemus are true disciples who before the resurrection are secret disciples because they're afraid? After the resurrection, will they boldly, like another Pharisee, guy named Saul of Tarsus who becomes the Apostle Paul, will they publicly take their stand for the Lord and the truth of the gospel? What do you think? I don't know. I don't know what happens to them. I don't know what the Sanhedrin did to them if they did anything to them. I don't know whether they followed up this act of courage with a life of boldness. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. We're not told. You know why? I think it's because the gospel is not about what Joseph or Nicodemus did. The gospel is about Christ and what he did. So the issue is not so much what did they do. The issue is what will you do? It's a guy, Richard Caldwell down in Houston, who said concerning this text, he said, secret discipleship will always become public discipleship if it is true discipleship. It's kind of where I got the idea for the title of the sermon. So let me just ask you this. Even if you work for a company, a major corporation, I know many of you do, that hates Christ, hates him, hates his word, hates the truth of his word that is the basis for morality and civility, and even if you don't work for them, many of you still wear their tennis shoes, don't you? You still drink their coffee. You still use their apps. You still drive their cars. In other words, we live in a fallen world that by nature hates the Lord, hates him, as much as the Sanhedrin hated Christ. So here's the question. Can we live out the gospel with kindness and honesty with a strong work ethic, proving that we are the best, we are the best employees that you can have as a Christian. And can we do that while showing compassion for those who hate Christ and who at times may hate us because of Christ? 
And can we do it in a way that when they see that we're, we're not self-centered, we're not self-absorbed, we're not egomaniacs, we're not so self-righteous that we can't love them as Christ commanded in the Sermon on the Mount when he said anyone can love those who love them. I'm telling you, love those who despise you, who hate you, who do all manner of evil against you. Love them the way Christ loved you while you were yet a sinner. Pharisee asked Christ one time to clarify that. Read it this afternoon in Luke 10. And Christ tells him a parable about a Samaritan whom they despised. A Samaritan who helped a Jew in need. Though that Jew hated him. Hated him. Can we live out our salvation with fear and trembling in ways that put the needs of others ahead of our own agendas? Is it sinners like the Samaritan lady in Sychar? She'd been married five times and was living with some guy. To whom Christ compassionately speaks the gospel? Can we, like him, compassionately show concern for those who hate us because they hate Christ? Can we, without approving of their immorality, we don't approve their immorality. Can we, without being absorbed by their culture, we live in their culture, not of their culture. Can we, without proclaiming we're holier than thou because of what we know or what we do or what we don't do. By the way, which we come off as Pharisees when we do that. And that's what a lot of times creates such hateful attitudes and dispositions towards Christians. It just turns off those that don't know Christ. and keeps us from ever having a chance to, to give them the life-changing message of the gospel. And so the question is, is it possible to be a public disciple of Christ in ways that don't purposely increase their hatred, but by the grace of God opens doors for us to share with them who it is that lives within us and lives through us, producing the fruit that Christ said that we would bear much of. You will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've ever been a secret disciple, I agree with Caldwell here. You will be a public disciple if, if you are a true disciple. Because we can't hide the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We can't do it. We do what we do because that's who we are. That's who we are. These two secret disciples have to be public disciples if they are true disciples. And you know what? The same is true of us. Same is true of us. If you have any questions about that, if you, you have any questions about, well, how can I know whether or not I am a true Christian, whether or not I'm, I'm actually, or, or how, how can I live this out? Here's where I work. Here's what I have to deal with. This is, is, uh, is what I have to, to, uh, to, to accept. And what is it that I cannot accept? How do I draw that line? 
You need help with that? You can go to the connect table. There'll be somebody back there that will help get you connected to, to those that can assist you, can walk with you through that. I hope that all of us will make it our goal this week to be a public disciple because we are a true disciple. Even if there are times when we have to remain silent in order to earn the right to be heard because of the fruit of the Spirit that we bear. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your long-suffering. We're grateful for your redeeming grace that was purchased for us at an extremely high cost by Christ at Calvary. Lord, thank you for the spirit of truth that he has sent to indwell us, enabling us to do what he's commanded us to do and be what he's commanded us to be, all for the glory of your name. And Lord, we do pray for you to live in and through us by your power, for your glory, in a way that we can work out our salvation, displaying the fruit of your spirit to others within this church as well as to those outside of this church. Father, we ask that this morning in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.